Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, November 4th, 2011. This week, episode 226 comes to you from Studio C, a packed Studio C, in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Back with me in the studio again this week is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Joe, it's always fun. And right beside him, our first engineer, Zach Zlotnick, back in the saddle, hanging in there. Zach. Hey, Joe. Hey, Cliff. It's great to be back. Good to have you back, Zach. Now with the Google. The Google Meister. Huh? Google Meister. All right. That's right. Good to have you back, Zach. And, of course, at, well, at the controls for the first time this week is Valerie Bender. <laughs> Hi. Good Val, to be here. And Stone Cold, Austin Stone Cold Novak. Howdy. He's assisting. <laughs> All right. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question, an interview with Joy Finch, department head at Greenville Technical College. We're going to talk a little education today. We'll go to our halftime and our roundup with, of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. And our newest marquee sponsor, of course, is Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more at netclaimsnow.com. All right. Uh, before we get started here, let's make sure everybody knows how to join us. Of course, you can just follow the link on your invitation or go to the iaqradio.com website and follow the link that says go to the show. We also have those ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits. Just email me and request a quiz at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. (laughs) 
win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email, either <laughs> email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, text in your answer. Congratulations. <laughs> to Andrew Gunzer, Certified Safety Consulting, LLC in St. Louis, Missouri, for being the first person to identify Duncan Fife as the Scottish-born furniture designer and maker who emigrated to America and is acknowledged as one of the leading 19th century makers who is most well-known for incorporating the lyre or harp motif into his furnishings. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, November 4th, 2011 has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Now for this week's trivia question. Standing at over 550 feet tall, name the tallest educational building in the Western Hemisphere. Back to you, Joe. Great question, Cliff. I'm sure uh, at least one of our people here knows the answer to that. There we go. (laughs) All right. Joy Finch is with us today. Joy is with the faculty of Greenville Technical College, joining them in October of 2000. She is the department head with the Continuing Education, Environmental Health, and Safety Training Program. She's an associate professor professor and department head, again, for that environmental health and safety in the Corporate and Career Development Division, and she has been instrumental in launching a nationally recognized EPA-approved Training and Critical Incident Management Institute at Greenville Tech. Her division offers face-to-face and online training, for a variety of environmental health and safety subjects, including asbestos, lead, indoor air quality, green technologies, and occupational health. Joy is the past president of the Environmental Information Association and currently serves on the National Environmental Health and Safety Training Association Board of the uh, Certified Environmental Trainers Program. Joy has a uh, Master of Science in Environmental Management from the University of Maryland University College and a Bachelor of Arts in Music Performance and Humanities from Converse College. And by the way, she's quite a, a talented musician. If you get a chance to check out Joy on the piano, she's excellent. And we want to welcome her with a little music. Education, 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 can't you see? Education, 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 you and me. Education, 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 didn't do. Education, education, something, something, me and you. Education. Education. Hello, Joy, do we have you on the line? Hi, Joe. I'm here. <laughs> Welcome, Joy. I, you know, I should have. I didn't think about it. I could have asked you to send us a little tape for your introduction music. <coughs> You're quite talented. I know we've enjoyed listening to you play a little piano on occasion. Uh, anyway, Joy, we want to talk about education today, and let's start with a little bit about the background of your program there at Greenville Tech. You know, Joe, here at Greenville Tech, we're getting ready to celebrate 50 years of serving our community. We're pretty excited about that. And Greenville Tech began focusing on adult education within five years after the institution started. So we've been at this for about 45 years here. 
Now, our division, as we know it now, which is called the Corporate and Career Development Division, uh, moved into our own facility in 2001. Um, we've been doing the asbestos and lead training since uh, 1999 for lead, 2002 for asbestos, and shortly after that started doing the under-air quality training with our IEQ partners. Okay, and I, that's the Buck Mickle Center, and is that all part of the Corporate and Career Development Division there? That is correct. We uh, we used to be spread throughout our five campuses, but now we have uh, consolidated our continuing education offerings here in the Buck Mickle Center. We also do on-site training whenever needed, but it's really nice to have most of the staff here in the same building. It it helps us coordinate de- between departments some and, and not be so much in our own silos as we tend to be sometime in the education industry. Well, the other nice thing, and that it's something we'll talk more more about later, but I wanted to set it up now, is you have tremendous opportunities for hands-on components to your training by having that facility there. We do, and not only this facility, but um, we get to use resources all over the campuses. So uh, we can go to larger buildings on campus and look at HVAC components. Um, in some of our trainings, we can go to our simulation lab and, and use the simulations that have been set up, say, for um, our healthcare division. So there's a lot of resources that are available when you're at the, the college-level training. Joy, uh, it's Cliff. How many years have you been there personally? I came to Greenville Tech in 2000, um, and I came from a little over of a decade in training for a private consulting firm, which is traditionally you see a lot of the for-profit tri- private consulting firms in this area. Uh, I, I really enjoyed jumping that fence and coming over to the uh, .edu side of the house. Uh, it kind of frees you up. You get to focus more on what the students actually need and uh, the, the academic side of things. I enjoy that part of this job. You know, in the past 11 years that you've been there, there have been some significant changes in the economy. You know, it's been good. It's been bad. It's been mediocre. Does the economy affect uh, enrollments? Well, you know, Cliff, when the economy is bad, technical college enrollments tend to go up because people have to retool and look for a way to to change their um, abilities to get a job. And that's what we focus on. You know, at Greenville Tech, one of our mottos here is training that works. We try to, to give people training that will help them get a job. And as, as I was looking, uh, preparing for, for our program today, I, was, I did a little bit of a job search to find some jobs that looked at IAQ components for those job responsibilities and found several in um, environmental health specialties, uh, building maintenance specialties, where they specifically said that they wanted some IAQ components in, in the job training. Joy, how many other programs around the country are, are similar to what you do? You've got a pretty big menu of, you know, training offerings and course offerings there. Can you compare for us and give us an idea of what other universities or colleges have similar programs? Well, Joe, historically there were um, uh, about 25 or, or so active trainers in the asbestos area, which, which was one of the first specialties in the indoor environmental quality types of training. Uh, When lead broke loose, we have a lot of different entities now doing the lead training, especially since the renovator training started happening in 2010. Uh, You have some programs that are involved in the OSHA Training Institute that focus on a lot of um, the uh, safety issues. You have some that are NIOSH University Research Centers. Um, 
to, to give you some that are kind of similar to us, uh, it's, it's difficult for me to do. You, you find some in different areas, but I don't see a consolidated approach to environmental health and safety needs when I look at universities and colleges across the nation. You know, that's that's been my experience, too. I think you're, you're somewhat unique in that respect. I'm sure there are others. Like, we had uh, Dr. Randy Rapp on. Purdue has a program for right. disaster restoration. But I... I can't really think of too many programs that have lasted as long as yours has, um, especially at the college university level, and have diversified the way you have. So congratulations. I think you've really done a great job down there. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was indoor environmental quality issues and indoor environmental quality education. Let's focus on that for a moment. I do have a text question. I'll get to that guest five in a moment. But uh, let's start with indoor environmental quality education. Can you give us our, you know, your view of what the state of the industry is right now with respect to indoor environmental quality education? Well, again, I like to compare that to environmental education in general. Joe, you and I have been in this field long enough to to where there was there was not an advanced degree available when we started. And so you had to get training in a variety of disciplines and then get certified in those disciplines or licensed. Um, we see the same thing true now for IAQ or IEQ, whichever you want to call it. Um, we are starting to see some of the IEQ components being integrated into traditional degrees. Uh, for example, if you if you look at um, architectural degree on the MIT website, you'll see indoor air quality as one of the things that's included in that degree component. Um, HVAC technicians are starting to, to look at indoor air quality. Um, certainly the traditional focus on building sciences, industrial hygiene, um, biosciences, those people have an indoor air quality component. But I don't think there's such a thing as an indoor air quality degree right now. So we still have to have training and certification programs in order to be able to um, have some type of verification that the people doing the work know what they're doing. You know, and it's been, I've, I've been, Cliff and I both, we've been doing this for probably 10 years, and it's really a mixed bag. It's all over the place. You see you know, some online training, some classroom training, some mix of the two. We've got different associations involved in the in the industry. Um, we've got numerous different certifications. I'm I'm curious, what are your thoughts on some of the different uh, you know certifications that are available through indoor air quality type training programs? Well, you used a couple of words there, Joe. You said certificate or certification, and then you mentioned training. I think we have to understand that there's a difference between an education or a degree program where we're trying to teach people about critical thinking, where they get the information and they learn how to think and draw their own conclusions, to where uh, as compared to a training program that has a very specific focus, it's well-defined, you're teaching someone in some steps. Um, so in an education degree program, the people learn the basics and learn to think for themselves. So, for example, it might be a microbiologist or um, an industrial hygienist. A training program, that person may or may not have that education program, but they have some training that's specifically geared toward one or two different components of what they're trying to do. So you might have certifications in, say, how to do remediation and certification in how to do investigations. 
Um, So so the industry is still floundering a bit. You know, IICRC has 20-plus different types of certifications. ACAC has close to 20 different certifications. And there's a difference between a certification and a certificate. With a certification, there's been some type of verification that a person has appropriate uh, field experience, work experience, and can pass possibly a third-party exam, whereas the certificate program just says that they attended a class, and the validity of the program depends upon the institution that offered that uh, class. And I, I don't see the industry heading in one direction or the other at this point. I think it's still kind of experimenting on which way is going to be the best way to make sure that people that do the work do it appropriately. You know, one of the things that I've always disagreed with is... And I never finished college, and the reason I never finished college is I couldn't take the courses that I wanted to take, and I had to take all these courses that I didn't want to take, which I really thought were a waste of time and a waste of interest, you know. And, you know, the thing about it is I think you can get, I think in many of these things you can get the degree in two years if you just focus on what you, you know, on the technical aspects and educational aspects of what you need. You know, I don't need a language. You know, I don't need physical education. I don't need all these other, you know, mandatory, you know, the elective, so to speak, rather than just the core courses. And I think that, um, I don't know, can you comment on that? I think that's very true of many adults that come back to college. They don't want to sit for all the requirements for a degree program. I also think it's really interesting what the state of Arkansas has done. So they're requiring 20 hours of college studies in microbiology in lieu of other types of certification. If you don't have, say, a CIH or a CIE, they'll accept those 20 hours of uh, college-level courses in that area, but they don't require a degree. And I think that has some validity in in being able to look at, okay, well, what did you take? Was it from an accredited college? What courses did you have? Did that give you some background that you can use in lieu of a particular certification program? I also think that um, in in today's world of higher education, we are having to learn how to accommodate the needs of the students. Education has changed so much with different modes of delivery. It's no longer just to stand up and come listen to the sage on the stage. It's very much student-focused learning, uh, trying to figure out what the objectives are for the student and then a way to meet those objectives and also tying that into getting jobs. And that's a key point, tying that into getting jobs. Now, a lot of the people that we do training for, many of them already have a job. So you've got a little tougher situation in many cases where you have people coming in for, let's let's take, for instance, a certificate program. Can you give us an example of a certificate program and what that means at Greenville Tech? Sure. One of the ones we've just started is our solar training certificate. Uh, we have some introductory level classes, and then we have um, some in the solar, solar photovoltaic and solar thermal. And the person that comes out of that, while they may not decide to go for the full two-year building sciences degree, they can come out with a solar training certificate. Uh, and that certificate can either be used by itself or the training and education that you get during that certificate could allow you to sit for, say, a NABCEP uh, national certification in, in, in solar installation and design. So you have a two-year program for building science? Yes, we do. I didn't know that. Okay. And that how long has that been in existence? 
Um, I'm not sure of the exact date that the building sciences program started. That's on the credit side. My guess would be at least a couple of decades. Okay. That's interesting. Well, I'm curious, you know, Joy, we've been, you and I both and, and Cliff, to some degree, involved with the asbestos world for years. And I got confused whenever I came into this IAQ stuff because uh, the IICRC, and that's the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. So now the Clean Trust. Now the Clean Trust, which we had a show about last week. But anyway, you know, they certify people, and, and there's a lot of these certifications, whereas when I did asbestos training, it was for a license. And I don't even remember what we gave them a certificate of attendance. It wasn't a certificate program, I don't think, uh, so to speak, but it was a certificate of attendance and they didn't get a, a certification. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is in the asbestos world, every state, it seems, had their own requirements and things were very splintered and it was very difficult to do work in more than one state because of these licensing requirements. Do you see the same thing happening in the indoor environmental quality world, and in particular with mold remediation? No, I think that boils down a lot to cost. Um, you know, when when New York State had the recent report from their Toxic Mold Task Force, and they looked at the cost of having a state-run program where they license and they approve training providers in the more traditional and asbestos and lead sense, and they have to have staff that goes out and does the uh, audits of the training provider courses, that cost was going to be over a million dollars annually, while the cost of having a third party do exams, so they rely on someone being able to pass a certification program where the third party does exams and looks at their past um, uh, their their work experience. That cost was a fraction uh, of the cost of the state running the program, and I think that is going to affect how states tend to go in the future. Yeah, I think I, you you're dead on there. And and the other problem I see is at least with the asbestos world, even though it ended up being a nightmare with different states having different requirements, there was a federal law that kind of gave them an outline of what they had to teach or what they had to do to get workers or supervisors or inspectors to the point where they were ready to do asbestos-related work. Whereas in the indoor environmental quality, like for indoor environmental professionals or for mold remediation, there is no real, like, Federal, you know, federal regulation kind of as a guideline to establish what the minimum standards are. And I think the states are having a real hard time wrestling with that. Well, not only that, I think we have a trend now to move toward a more holistic approach. So you see the HUD focus on healthy homes programs. Uh, you see healthy housing. So, so you don't have uh, one group of people that do asbestos, another that do lead, another that do radon, another that do IAQ. We start to look at the building as a whole. And I think for the consumer, for the occupants of that building, that's a much better approach. Now, how we handle the, the training and education and licensing of those people remains to be seen because you got a lot of involved persons that don't want to give up their piece of the pie yeah that's another issue there now let me, i've got a text question and the guest who texted it had a little trouble with uh getting back in but they're back and and we mentioned a few times lead training and one of the hot topics right now is the lead renovation repair and painting rule 
And his question is, um, what type of equipment would a renovation, repair, and painting lead certified person need to begin with? And can you rent any of this equipment? Uh, if I were him, I would go to the Sherwin-Williams website and I would look up their flyer where they have a whole list of, of things that they have put together just for lead renovators. I'm sure there's some other uh, paint industry suppliers that ha have similar documents, too. I guess the most important piece of equipment that I can think of is, is a HEPA vacuum, a high-efficiency particulate air vacuum. You, you've got to have a good HEPA vacuum to do any lead work. Is there any other... I can't think of any other specific, you know, other than some swabs and things of that nature. Uh, of course, you need some poly and, and things, but uh, a good HEPAVAC. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, Joy, what, have you done any research on which HEPAVACs are doing better than others with respect to actually collecting this dust? I have not. Okay. Um, uh, I do think that you need to stay away from retrofit of your basic shop vac. And you need to get a HEPAVAC where the manufacturer states that the um, equipment is approved for use in asbestos and lead. And as a matter of fact, the EPA addressed that issue in their August uh, 2011 changes to the RRP rule that were promulgated in the Federal Register. And in that, they, they wanted to clarify that HEPAVACs have to be operated and maintained in accordance with the manufacturer's instructions. And for some of, some of the retrofit vacuum cleaners, if you look very closely at the manufacturer's instructions, it will say that they are not approved for use for asbestos and lead. That's a good point. And the manufacturers, like I, I work with a few manufacturers out there, well, actually people who sell equipment. And if you look carefully at, the way they advertise it, those that are advertising in a, a truthful manner, which most reputable manufacturers and distributors are, they will be specific with you about whether or not that HEPA vacuum is the type that you would use for a lead abatement or an asbestos abatement type project, or if it's just a general cleaning type vacuum they're, where they're trying to clean a, a building or whatever the case may be and try and uh, reduce the allergen load. And notice that the, the EPA rule also focused on the maintenance of the HEPAVACs, so you have to actually change the filters when when they start to get clogged up in order for the equipment to work properly. Yeah, yeah, and that's, well, let's, we can talk a little more about that lead because that was a big issue. Let me, well, while we're at it, let me ask you this. That was huge last year. I mean, I would imagine you were swamped doing lead renovation, repair, and painting rule training. Is that accurate? Uh, swamped is not hardly enough. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to describe what happened with us last year. We, um, we've trained, we, we had uh, training providers going in, in 14 different states, uh, and we're up to close to 6,000 renovators trained uh, through our program here at Greenville Tech. A lot of that had to do with our connections through the years in the industry. Um, we knew a lot of training providers out there, and when the need hit, we were able to to get our instructors that were already well-versed in uh, lead abatement and asbestos abatement on board to help us deliver that training and meet that need when it first came about. Well, what is it like now? We do a couple of courses here in Greenville, South Carolina a month. Um, they are holding their own. It's certainly not the huge rush that we saw last spring. And then we still do um, contract courses with our uh, uh, other community college providers and some of our other instructors that are our partners in training. 
No, I... but it, it's holding its own. The courses are still out there, uh, but certainly the rush is over. And frankly, I think that's a little bit of a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was it was all a little too much all at once. I think if it would have been spread out over a couple of years, it would have been better for for everybody involved. I think. Joy, I see a lot of discussion on on the chat rooms, and I, I want to finish with this lead RRP before we go to halftime. A lot of discussion about from contractors and from training providers saying that the contractors they have trained are really to, at, to some degree at a disadvantage because they're being undercut by people who don't use the RRP and don't follow the RRP and therefore they're be able to do jobs at a lower price. Do you hear the same complaint from the people that uh, take your courses or from your training providers that report back to you? I do hear the same complaint, and typically when we have a new regulation, it takes a while for enforcement to start. I know here in Region 4, um, EPA is active and the states are active, out there looking at jobs, responding to complaints, uh, trying to make sure that people that do this work do it correctly, but uh, they are limited in their resources. Um, there's, it's going to take a, 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 a period of months in order for enforcement activities to to reach a level where people pay attention and there's political concerns there too yeah there's a real pushback at this point in time now as i understand it there were supposed to be quite a few changes and that kind of got watered down a little bit can you give us a real quick overview of what actually has changed over the last six months well in response to a settlement agreement uh that the epa was uh Assigned, they had to do what was called the clearance rule, um, and that was supposed to be promulgated uh, last summer, and it was. But uh, the clearance rule did not end up requiring clearance. They decided not to require clearance and dust wipe testing as they proposed in, in, in their May 2010 proposed regulations. Um, so what changed, one of the major changes, was that renovators are now going to be allowed to take a paint chip sample in order to determine whether or not lead-based paint is present before they disturb that paint during their renovation activities. So training courses are having to now include modules and hands-on exercises on how to do paint chips. And the other big change as far as work practices had to do with vertical containment. Uh, vertical containment or some type of equivalent extra precaution is going to be needed whenever renovators are working within 10 feet of a property line. So they can put up a scaffold with some poly, whatever they need to do to keep that uh, lead dust from going over to the adjoining property when they're working on the exterior. All right. Joy, it's perfect. We hit 1230, and we're going to stop for halftime, and we'll be right back with you for the second half. Okay, Joe, thanks. There we go. Our association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. 
The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. And let's not forget our newest marquee sponsor, Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more at netclaimsnow.com. All right, let's get uh, Dr. Wow. Let's see if we can get Dr. <coughs> wow and get Joy back on the phone. Uh, do we have a... There it is. All right. She's a little slow on the trigger, Dieter, but we got it. Oh, and I heard it. That's all right. <laughs> Dieter, I thought we'd bring you in. This is, I know, a subject near and dear to your heart. Any any comments on the first half? Oh, certainly. No doubt about it. Um, and I think Joy uh, said that she didn't say it the way I said it, but she certainly meant what I'm going to say. It is very easy to teach a course. It is incredibly difficult to set up a program. And with a program, I'm saying that you have a bunch of faculty over there, and the students can interact with them. They have an open door, and they can go in there. And I said, sir, you gave a lecture, or for that matter, lady, you gave a lecture, and I have a question on this and that. If you, yes, I can teach a course anywhere in the world. I mean, not in Chinese or in Mongolian, but, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but that is not a program. And a program is incredibly difficult to, to set up. And uh, I like that. Uh, uh, when, when such a, uh, a program does exist on several uh, levels, I, that, that is great. And I, I, I somewhat disagree a little bit uh, with uh, Cliff you know, on, on, on education. You know, I have a, a bachelor's and master's of science in mechanical engineering, and I started that in Germany, and uh, I, uh, I took courses here and there. And even though I... I uh, did take courses which, quote, had nothing to do with engineering, <clears throat> such as music, and um, I'm glad I was introduced to that, uh, really am, and 
I think a, a, a well-educated person ought to know the difference between Ludwig van Beethoven and Joe DiMaggio or Babe Ruth or Hermann Ruth, as he was. Nice German name. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, I never got paid for that, but I certainly am happy that I uh, was introduced and exposed to this type of, well, liberal arts or whatever you want to call it. And I think that's part of uh, the education that a well-rounded person, a university person, ought to possess. What else do I have over there? The facilities at Bat Nichols are absolutely incredible. I know Joy for several years now. I was down there at least four, five, six times over the last, whatever, eight years or so. And, uh, yeah, two beautiful and uh, uh, lecture halls, classrooms, hands-on areas. So, I mean, this is well set up. I like to come down there. And... Uh, 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 use the facilities and interact with students who are coming to my courses. And we love to have you, Dieter. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope let's hope it will work out in December. And if not, I will be there next year. How about that? There you go. That sounds great. Well, Joy, you know, we talk. We've got Doctor Wow on the line here, and he's got this certification. It's called the Certified Industrial Hygienist (CIH). And I just wanted to. When we were going back and forth about, you know, what to discuss here today, my my question was, what are your thoughts on certification programs in general? I know we've talked a little bit about that, but you had a really good bullet point here that I just wanted you to get another chance to take a stab at, and that is that, you know, the perceived value can be different based on what certification it was. Very much so, Joe, and, and I want to tie that, that back into something I said earlier. It has to do with what employers perceive and what you see in um, uh, job requirements. To me, a lot of that affects whether or not you're going to get value in putting those initials behind your name. Uh, it, it, you can go out and get an alphabet suit behind your name if you want to, but if it's not related to the type of job you're looking for, it's not going to do you any good. Well, that's a great point. I think... The other group that I have to deal with is, is, you know, the disaster restoration people, and not just I, but they have to deal with, is the general public and also insurance companies, et cetera. And I get the question all the time, um, is this a certification course, and do I get a certification? There's a, I, I think the IICRC now, the Clean Trust, has done a good job of getting the public and or the insurance industry at least to request these certifications. I don't think they've done as good of a job on actually making the certifications as meaningful as we would like, but um, the public does recognize some of these. Cliff, do you have any? Well, I think it's just the term, Joe. I, I don't. I, I think they rec the public recognizes the term certified, yep. uh, like certified public accountant. It, it's meaningful. And I think in many ways, you know, going to a class for eight hours or 16 hours, you know, you're a two-day wonder or a three-day wonder. Or, and I, I think in many situations it's a disservice because they have, you know, 60,000 registrants, you know, people running around with these patches and, and certifications. And I think it diminishes the meaningfulness of it. Okay. Joy, did you want to add anything there? 
I think the um, general public is not necessarily making a distinction between a certificate and a certification. To me, a, a certificate says that you've been to a class, uh, for, for whatever class and however long you've been to a class and, and met the requirements of that class. Where a certification says that someone has looked at your, your training, your education, your experience, and, and hopefully someone has also done some type of assessment uh, of your learning outcomes, uh, whether that be a third-party exam or exam that's a part of a college course. To, that's leading more toward a certification program. Yeah, and that we've got to try and figure out a way to clear up that confusion. Cliff. Yeah, yeah. What, what's interesting, Zach's here, and at one time he was the youngest, like, IICRC certified registrant and uh, with ASCR, he was 10 years old. Okay. 10 years old. And he met her well. <laughs> and he took the test and, and he passed and he sat in there and, you know, he, he, we used to have him student teach and do all that other stuff. So, but, uh, you know, I, I just think that uh, Joyce is right, that I think many of these programs should be called a certificate program rather than a certification yeah. program. Yeah, and now I understand. Uh, Joy, are you very familiar with the ANSI American National Standards Institute certification program? I am familiar with ANSI and the ANSI training guidelines and uh, NOCA, which is moving to ICE now. And, and I think that has some value in, in um, and some rigor. To me, it's the same kind of rigor that you have when you're accredited colleges and you have to go through accreditation periodically. Uh, I think that we should be looking at who's providing this training and education and what's the content of those programs. Now, does the ANSI program have a certificate and a certification level, or is it just certification? That I can't answer without looking closely at the program. Sorry. Okay. okay. I just I thought I'd bring it up at this point because I, I was talking to someone the other day. I don't know if you know that, Cliff, or not, but um, they were ta telling me that they have a certificate program, but they also have a certification. I think it would help clear up so much confusion in the industry if you had certificates for people who took a training course and maybe passed the exam and then a, an actual certification for those that didn't. You know. yeah, I, I think some organizations like the what's it, NSF, National Safety Foundation or yeah. whatever, I think they do both. I think like food safety or something like that might be a certificate program and then they would have things that are more rigorous and much longer to yeah. obtain a, a certification. All right. Any final comments on that, Joy, before we move on? I do think it's important to look at um, the people that are providing the training and to look at the institutions that are providing the training. Uh, it has been a trend in our industry to have practitioners be the stand-up trainers, although every now and then you'll get a trainer that has some type of education degree. Uh, I think we need to look at instructional technology and um, the actual methods of delivery and whether or not people are focusing whether on on, on student outcomes, especially as we move into different modes of delivery. You know, in this day, it's not always the stand-up person that's doing the instruction. You can have online instruction, or you can even uh, download previously recorded lectures. So uh, we got to look at the institutions and look at their qualifications and how well they understand the needs and the outcomes of the students. Well, you led right into the next subject, which actually is a little discussion of well, actually, you hit two points. Let's start with the CET program, Certified Environmental Trainer, I believe that is. Maybe, maybe You can correct me if I'm wrong. I know you you were a big part of that program. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that program? 
that that's one that's kind of near and dear to my heart, Joe, because I'm on that board of certification. And what I really like about the Certified Environmental Trainer Program is not only do you choose a particular area of specialty, whether it be OSHA or emergency preparedness, um, wastewater was one of the early ones in the CET program, but there's also an instructional technology component to that certification. So you have to demonstrate knowledge about adult education principles, um, about whether or not you're able to do a training needs assessment and make sure that the training that you're delivering meets the needs of the people that are attending the course. And you can do an assessment at the end of that class. It kind of ties back into that ANSI standard we were talking about a while ago. It does. It as does. Far as, and I'm, as, go ahead. As far as instructional technology being a part of the program. Well, you also mentioned online training, and I'm wondering if you could maybe give listeners a few tips for how to, if they're going to go with that option, how to choose, how to, how to do the best job of choosing an appropriate online training program for themselves. I think if you're going to choose an online program, you need to look at one that you have an instructor-led training program, so it's not just you and the computer. Uh, I, I think we've got a lot of room for improvement for our online instructors <coughs> to become knowledgeable in online course development. Uh, Unfortunately, we've had a, a two-faceted approach where the instructors put the content together and then they hand it over to some IT folks to get it uploaded into an online platform. Well, instructors are going to have to increase their knowledge base there <clears throat> as far as putting the courses together. And then you need to have a program where you have contact with that instructor. You know, if you want to send that instructor a question or an email, they should be able to give you an answer within a specified period of time. I don't think 24 hours is, is too much to ask as far as being able to get a response from an online instructor. They should also make some type of um, structure available for you in the class. So it's not just you and the computer. You know that you have to complete a certain assignment within a certain period of time. You can interact with the rest of your course members while you do that assignment. Uh, you have some chat rooms available. You have some group projects that you can do. You might even have a phone conference with your instructor sometime during the class. So it's not just one person sitting at one computer. You still maintain some of that student active learning even in the online environment. I'm so glad you went into that. I'm, I'm glad I asked the question. I made a lot of notes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I did help teach one of these online courses at the University of West Florida, and we did all of those things that you just described, Joy. But I see so many of these <coughs> online training programs out there for $295. They're going to make you a, um, I don't know what, some kind of a water damage restoration expert or a mold remediation supervisor or an indoor environmentalist, which is another question. And I don't see it without that component that you just mentioned. I do believe there's a tremendous need for the online training and that um, done right, it can be better than in some cases than classroom training. But let's... Yeah, and I, I think what's most important is this contact after the course. How many times, Joe, oh. do, do you and I get get calls, uh, questions from ex-students? I mean, it, yep. it, it's like a mentoring process, and I think it's good. I think that's real important. It is. Dr. Wow, anything? Go ahead, Joy. I don't think online can replace the face-to-face -face interaction that happens between students and the people, the professors, or the group of professors that they're dealing with. I don't think it's a replacement. But I do think 
in, it's a compromise that kind of meets some of the economic realities that we're dealing with these days. You get students in who wouldn't be able to come to a class otherwise. But you got to make up for that compromise by making sure you use the technology to, uh, the, to the best means available. So, uh, you know, we're moving even toward um, some some videos of the instructors put on during the class. Uh, and you can have live interaction now with webcams. That whole digital age of education is in its infancy, and we got a long way to go and a lot to learn. Yes, we do. Uh, Dr. Wild, did you want to join, add anything at this point? Yeah, I, uh, uh, yeah, I agree 100% uh, with what has been said. And... Um, uh, you know me, and uh, Joy knows me. I still maintain, give me a piece of chalk and a blackboard, and that's when I'm very, very effective. I know that. I have done that for 30 years or more. Um, I probably am lousy at really handling an online course uh, because, A, I have never done it, I haven't gotten a certificate, <laughs> no pun intended, that you, yeah, I don't, I don't know what is effective and how to do that, how to start it. Like I said, if I see a class, warm bodies in front of me and a blackboard, I'm good. I know what I'm doing and I can interact uh, to be yeah, separated yeah, through a computer uh, I'm not very good at that. So I think yeah, Joy is, is, is right there. You, know, you, you, you have to look at the program and the way it is. You have to be able to evaluate it. And if somebody tells me after I gave a class and I said, sir, that was the lousiest lecture I ever heard, I will sit down and I will sit down with him and I said, hey, well, why do you think so? Where did I fail? What didn't I tell you that you wanted? And... Yeah, on I think I said it, but anyway, I have a note over here. I went to certificate courses, uh, some of them on lead and lead regulations. That was about two or so, three years ago when they came out. That was a convenient way of learning what is up and what is in the regulations and what they mean to me and the industry and all of that. Uh, that didn't make me an expert in... Uh, everything to know about lead, that's for sure. But I have a certificate that I attended a class, which I think was four hours or so. And um, it was a convenient way to catch up with what was written in fine print in the Federal Register or something like right, that. Right, right. Well, Joy, let me ask you a question when it, while we're on the online, and then we're going to go to the roundup, and we've got our old engineer here. I know he wants to add to this discussion because that's one of his areas of expertise, of specialties. He's the IT guy. But, Joy, let me ask you this. <coughs> what are we doing with respect to giving people... <coughs> options for hands-on activities as a part of the uh, online training how can we make online training kind of better with respect to assisting people with the hands-on components is that possible well joe we call that blended learning here uh one of the things we have it here in our continuing education division is a nursing refresher program for nurses that are uh, coming back into the occupation after being out for a while. And they need to get caught up on, on some of the advances in the industry. They also need to have their skills checked. 
And we partner with different institutions, uh, and we get approval from dis- different nursing boards. And, and so the nurse can go through the online component and then show up at a local college and then do uh, the blended component where they go through the clinicals. Uh, I think if we can train nurses that way, I think we can also train the technicians that are out there doing this, the IAQ work that way too. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's go to the roundup. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. All right. Hey, we, we've got a special event today because Zach Zlotnick's back with us, and Zach's really heavily into the IT world now with Google, and I know you wanted to make a comment on the online training issue. Yeah, exactly. So, so Joy, um, one, uh, one of the comments you made about, um, about, about video and webcams and all that stuff uh, be, be, beginning, to, beginning to really uh, take hold, I've actually done a lot of uh, training uh during my time at Google, both uh, both uh, on both giving training and receiving training, and I and I can tell you I can tell you right now that your statement is one hundred percent correct about uh, about about face to face interaction, uh, and and how uh, video um, and how video conferencing and technology like that uh, will never replace it. Can't do it. It absolutely never will. Yeah. Just, I mean, just because, uh, just because you're sitting in a room with with people and you're interacting, you have a lot more. I'm going to use the computer term bandwidth here, and that's that really is the, that really is the term because there's a lot of things you can pick up on uh, by being in the same room with the same person that you would not be able to pick up over over a webcam, for instance. Oh, great, thanks. And for you that. know, you know, Zach, I think there's a different skill set involved too. It's kind of what Dieter said, you know, uh, our typical uh, professors and instructors, they aren't trained to say, okay, you, you stand straight and you look right into that camera and you smile and we're going to capture this lecture so we can keep putting it up and let students look at it later. Well, that's a different type of, of performance as such than a, a, a live inst- instruction in a classroom. Yeah, good luck getting Dieter to do that. Stand still. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And actually, going along with that, um, so you actually brought up another another good point there. If you're if you're doing it online or something like that, you tend to view it as more of a performance, like as as if you're an actor, for instance, as opposed to just you know being just just as opposed to being a professor or a lecturer or a, or or in other words a font of knowledge for for instance well, Zach, I've always maintained that my undergraduate music degree has a lot of relevance for what I do now. I definitely <laughs> agree. what I mean. I said that before. Yes, <laughs> I agree with you. As someone who took <laughs> piano lessons as a kid, believe me, I know exactly where you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely, you're a performer <laughs> up there. You know, Cliff, let's get you in here, and then I'll probably sure. have to wrap. Sure, well, no, we got some time. Let's go ahead. Joyce, can, can you comment on the Environmental Information Association? Sure. One thing about um, the EIA, as I call it, that that I think is is relevant to our discussion is it's a multi multidisciplinary organization. So it doesn't just focus on IAQ or just focus on 
uh, led. It, it did come from the old National Asbestos Council years ago, but that organization realized that we needed a more holistic approach, just like we were talking about uh, uh, a while ago in education. So it has uh, a conference where you have some of the best brains in the industry doing presentations on asbestos, on lead, on indoor air quality, on environmental management systems. So it tries to bring together all those disciplines. It also looks at contractors and consultants and building owners. And and I really enjoy those conferences for one place. Uh, it's one place that I can go that I can get a lot of information on a lot of different subjects instead of just focusing on one subject. What's their website, Joy? EIA-USA.org. EIA-USA.org. All right. Let's, uh, Dieter, any final comments? We're kind of uh, running low on time, but I know you've got to have at least one more final comment. Oh, at least one. But <laughs> I, I think, yeah, that the one thing we haven't said, but we mentioned it in between, if I go into a class or if Joy starts to play a piano in front of an audience, I don't care where, after the first set, you know what's happening in the audience. You have that feeling right away. And every musician, I played in a band for five or six years at least, uh, everybody goes through that, and you have lousy days, and you have fantastic days, just just like we always do whenever we do normal things. Sometimes you are fantastic, and the others say, hey, I could have been better. And uh, that is the thing that, 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 that you are missing when you are in, sitting in front of a computer screen. Yeah. You don't know what is on the other side. Like I said, if I go into a classroom, I know after five minutes, whether the guys and girls are with me or whether they are just sitting there because somebody told them to be there. Yep. And that is a thing we are absolutely missing when you look at a computer screen. And Joyce said that also. There is no replacement for that. And I don't think there's any replacement for not live music. I like live music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, Peter, I think that's one of the skill sets of those online instructors is being able to pull students in and get feedback into them when you're having to deal with a verbal type of communication instead of just a visual or kinetic, kinetic communication. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, um, uh, uh, like I said, I, I never did it. And therefore, I'm pretty sure I'm lousy at it. <laughs> and um, I, I never had that experience where I yeah, felt, oh, everybody liked me and a lot of questions were coming up. I don't know that. I have, like I said, I have never done it. And um, I'm too old to, <laughs> to learn that nowadays, heck with it. But it's I, much but, harder to do without the the eye to eye. I I, I agree. I agree. Um, uh, uh, like I like I said, when I'm in front of a classroom, I know what's happening. I know what's happening. If I'm in sitting in the audience and there is music being played, I feel in the first five minutes whether that orchestra or that band or whoever it is whether they are on, whether they like to be uh, there, or whether they look at their watches and they said, hey, half an hour longer and we are the hell out of here. So that is, yeah, I, I think that is the one thing we, 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 we miss when uh, we go uh, in, in front of a camera and we don't really see the audience. 
But there's value in being able to take that musical performance home in a recorded version and listen to it over and over. And the same thing with education. There's value in being able to have captured lectures that you can go back and revisit. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Uh, I listen to the same CD with the same music several times. <laughs> and I read books several times. And, uh, uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. That is certainly something to be mentioned. And that is positive. Said, hey, I didn't get it the first time. What the heck did he talk about? <laughs> oh, let's re- listen to it again. Yeah, that, that of course, is gone when it's a live performance. Right. When it's done, it's done. Right. Well, let's... So uh, that is certainly a very valid point that you can say, hey, or like our show over here, some people said, hey, I didn't, I didn't have time today. I was in a meeting or whatever. Um, I, I couldn't listen to it. But I come back next week and I push the button and I have it. And then I can record it and I put it on a CD and I listen to it in my car when I go to work. Well, that, that is nice. There is no doubt about that. Yes. It is. In my new car, I can, I can use the, uh, what do you call it, little iTunes uh, player, oh, yeah, uh, MP3 player, yeah. Yeah. plug it right in. I did, dude. I broke down and bought a new one. Oh Speaking God, of cars. I'll call after the show. <laughs> Speaking of cars, how's your <laughs> Nissan? How's your Nissan, Dieter? Uh, the knee is mediocre. No, your Nissan, your <laughs> Nissan. Oh, the Nissan is fine. Oh, I thought you were talking about my knee. No, <laughs> no, no, the Nissan. Hey, we're running but out of you time. You an old used Volkswagen. <laughs> Joy, before we go, anything you'd like to add? I just really appreciate what you're doing here, Joe, and, and uh, enjoyed having the opportunity to be a guest. Thank you so much. Well, we, we appreciate having you join us on, in the first of what we hope will be a continuing you know series of discussions about how we can help improve the you know the state of the industry through education and through certification or whatever other means are necessary we're, we're just trying to open up conversation and educate each other on uh, how we can make this all a better industry so we certainly appreciate having you in for the first of these and i know we'll have more i also uh, want to thank dr wow for joining us dieter thanks as always we appreciate your input uh Great to have Zach Zlotnick back at the table, and unbelievable. It's uh, great to be back. Thank oh, you. Joe, it's always a pleasure. I like it. And, you know, I don't know. How, what what show number was that today? 226, Dieter. 226. Well, I listened to at least 200 of them. <laughs> yes, you have. Joy, any, can you give listeners contact information if they're interested in more, more information about you or Greenville Tech? Sure. Check out our website at GVL. TEC.edu, and we're the Corporate and Career Development Division. Great. Thanks again for joining us, Joy. We appreciate it, and I look forward to seeing you in December. Thank you. Look forward to seeing you too, Joe. All right. All right. Before we go, again, I want to thank the Z Man, Cliff Slotnick. Uh, it's fun today. Another fun day. Of we used up all the plug. We got Zach back. Yeah, all the earphones. You know, yeah, it's been our great. First engineer. Good to have you back. <laughs> Valerie, first time in the seat. Yeah, uh, nice yeah. job, Val. Okay. Of course, Dr. Wow for joining us. Uh, Austin, Stone Cold, sitting in the background here trying to keep things rolling. Thank you, Stone Cold. Uh, most importantly, thanks to all of you out there, our growing group of loyal listeners. We really appreciate having you here every week on IAQ Radio. Come back and join us again next Friday at noon for the next edition of IAQ Radio.
This has been another IAQ Radio production.